everyone. Thank you for joining me for episode 45 of the Mark Guy Show. So I've got some things to talk about on the current events front today, talking about the Republican health care legislation, what happened there, how it ended up being pulled, but who were the factions that resulted in it not passing, and what can we expect moving forward in health care legislation. And I also want to have another part of this episode. We'll see how long it goes. If it goes long enough, I could break it out into another episode. I don't really know. I don't have much planned there. I just kind of want to speak off the cuff, but talk about why I originally left the left. So I've talked about it here and there on the podcast. So if, if you've listened to this consistently, then you know the reasons generally why I originally registered as a Democrat. I registered as a Democrat in New York State when I turned 18. Uh, I had generally progressive ideals and then moved away from that over time. And within a couple years, I was, you could probably say, moderate libertarian. I think I've gotten further from that uh, from that moderate label over time. But I wanted to talk about that transition and why, you know, what did I feel most strongly about when I was a Democrat, when I felt like, okay, this is the camp that I'm going to, I'm going to fall in line behind. And then why did I move away from that? So first I'm going to talk about the healthcare legislation. And basically Friday, uh, today's Sunday, March 26th, by the way, I didn't say that at the, at the outset, but Friday, a couple days ago, basically minutes before the Republican healthcare legislation was going to be voted on, it was pulled. So they knew that they didn't have enough votes. They said that they were probably about 10 to 15 votes short. The Democrats were united against it. And you had both moderate Republicans and the House Freedom Caucus basically defecting from the Republican Party line. And the Republicans did not unite behind this bill. So both the the moderate Republicans, I think, were feeling pressure that it was too extreme, or at least, I guess, in the minds of their constituents, it was too extreme. I, of course, I don't know how anybody could think that was extreme and it's very similar to Obamacare Um, I haven't really read much of what the moderate Republicans actually said in response to this so I'm kind of guessing at at what their motives were but it seems like you had that side of the Republican Party that's typically more likely to to compromise with the Democrats and fall in line with the other moderate Democrats kind of in the the middle of the spectrum but what I really wanted to talk about more was the House Freedom Caucus and how they did not fall in line behind President Trump and they did not compromise on what they said originally, which was that this is bad legislation, that they what they ran on was a full repeal, a, a clean repeal, and they wanted to move more toward markets in healthcare and that this new legislation would not do that. It's Obamacare 2.0, that was something that they kept pushing. Um, it's really just a rebranding of many of the same ideas that were present in Obamacare. So the House Freedom Caucus was a, was a huge reason why this didn't pass. And I think we should commend them for this. I am not a fan of the Republican legislation. And I'm holding out hope for an actual repeal. You know, not a repeal and replace or repeal and repair. I'm still holding out hope for an actual repeal. I don't think they're going to do it. I don't think that this is ever going to get repealed. I do think that it looks like the Affordable Care Act is here to stay. I think that Trump has used whatever sort of, you know, political currency that he had in this fight, and he lost. He tried to send an ultimatum to the Republicans to fall in line behind, or we're never getting rid of Obamacare. 
And either way, I mean, he's he, it's kind of a lose-lose situation for him. That's why it's weird that he issued this ultimatum because unless they actually ended up coming through and, and succeeding. But now that they have lost here, now that this has been pulled, either he has to go completely against his word, against what he said, and try to work toward another bill, another bill that maybe will get more widespread support among the Republicans, or he's going to have the Affordable Health, or the Affordable Care Act in place for the rest of his presidency. So it's a lose-lose situation now, and that's why he backed himself into a corner by making that proclamation. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I think probably the best case scenario now, because I'm not holding, I'm not actually optimistic that a, that an actual repeal is going to happen. So if I'm being realistic and not optimistic, I think the ACA is here to stay and it's probably for the best. If they're not going to do an actual repeal, I would rather have the ACA stay in place rather than have the American Health Care Act go through. That's the, the name of the Republican legislation. Because I think this is going to unravel on its own. And I think that also the, the American Health Care Act would have unraveled because it had many of the same fatal flaws. That's what I talked about when this first came out, when the details first came out. They basically were trying to keep all of the quote-unquote good parts of Obamacare while taking away the more unpopular parts. But the unpopular parts were kind of necessary to keep the whole thing logically consistent. So if you take away the, the unpopular parts, then it would just probably unravel faster. But it's going to unravel. You're going to keep seeing premiums go up because, and I'm not going to go into this into a bunch of detail again because I've probably produced too much content on this and talked about this too much, but premiums are going to continue to rise and people are going to get fed up. Now, what do I think is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate end game here? I think it is single payer, fully socialized medicine in the United States. I think that's the end game here. I think that the compromises that went into place when Obama and you know and the Democrats when they when they initially passed the Affordable Care Act, they saw it as a compromise. Kind of a huge compromise because in their minds ideally it would be a universal single payer system. But they saw this as a stepping stone to reach that ultimate goal. And I've said I, I respect the progressives and the the Democrats in general for being able to basically make those gradations. And over time, you know, over decades, if you keep moving things just a little bit in the direction where you want to move them, you look back at where things are now versus where things were 50 years ago, and there are huge differences because they've continually moved things in the direction that they would like to see. And I think that's what the Affordable Care Act was. And I think they knew that they knew that they, that it had these fatal flaws, and that it would unravel in this way. But that's a perfect time to come in and say that, well, it's just the insurance companies are too greedy. We we can't operate with these insurance companies. So what do we have to do? We need to make the government run healthcare. That's what they're going to say. And they're going to say, no matter what we do, we can't have a system where we have the insurance companies wielding this much power. Look at how greedy they are, how they're charging you higher premiums every year. And of course, people aren't connecting the dots and saying that, well, the reason why premiums are going up so substantially every year is because of government intervention in the first place. It's because of the Affordable Care Act in the first place. And if you want to trace it back further to, to Medicare and Medicaid, and even though you know that was 50 years ago by now, but people aren't connecting those dots. And you see, 
you talk about something like the financial crisis and you can talk about how the Federal Reserve really played a major role in the financial crisis and really was probably the ultimate cause, interest rates being too low. But what people look at, <clears throat> all they see are the most, you know, are the most superficial explanations for what happened. And they look at, well, the banks made a lot of bad loans and did a lot of dumb things and the banks failed. So it's the bank's fault. You know, that's that's how they think. And they think that, well, what do we need? We need the government to come in and control banks better, to have more control over the banks. And that's exactly what happened. I think that's what's going to happen with healthcare when this unravels, because it will unravel. We're going to have calls for a single payer system, for a universal system. And I think that has major flaws, which I've, I've also talked about. I'm, of course, not a proponent of a single payer system. But I think that's the path that we're going down. And I think what the Democrats are going to do, because a lot's going to happen over these next four years, and I think the Democrats are going to push a very progressive candidate. They're not going to have the same flaws that they had with Hillary Clinton because Clinton had major flaws. I think they thought that she could win regardless. You know, she could she could beat Donald Trump or whoever the Republicans put up easily just because of her, her name recognition and all of that. But they're going to put somebody out there that isn't in bed with the banks, that isn't a crony politician, and probably will be further to the left, I would, I would assume. Somebody in the Elizabeth Warren or even Bernie mold. And Bernie will be quite old by then. Warren's pretty old herself, but she's younger than Bernie. And I guarantee you that's what they're going to be saying about health care. So I think coming out of this, so what's our conclusion as to this, this whole health care debate? What should we take away from this? I think it's that Trump has lost a lot of credibility in terms of trying to get legislation through. Um, I think that it shows that the House Freedom Caucus is not going to budge on Trump and isn't just going to fall in line behind the Republicans, which I think is a good thing. Um, that is one thing that Democrats have done time and time again. They have voted as a collective. They've agreed. They are willing to, to make compromises. But I think that's a huge issue. I don't want to see people making compromises. Compromises are what have gotten us in our current predicament now. And I don't want the House Freedom Caucus making huge compromises to maybe move a, a slight step in the direction in which they'd like things to move. Um, and, and I know that goes against what I said earlier about how the Democrats have really succeeded in making these small gradations over time. But I think that now we're so far over to that side. You know, the government is so intimately involved in so much of what's going on in healthcare. I'm just using healthcare as an example because that's what we're talking about now, that you really do need major change. And I think that the Republicans are blowing a huge opportunity here because if you look at Obamacare's popularity, its approval ratings, and I'll post a link to this, it was never approved by the American public based on polling data for its entire history up until this year. Up until the Republicans started talking about repeal and replace or repeal and repair. When everything coming out, all the negative Obamacare rhetoric coming out was to repeal it. When they were just talking about repeal, it was very unpopular. The only time it's been more popular than unpopular when it's had a positive approval rating has been this year. So I think the people really do want repeal. And of course, the overall people aren't going to be as loud as those people who are getting a benefit 
from the Affordable Care Act. But those people getting a benefit are a minority. Yes, they're a vocal minority, but we should not be allowing the vocal minority to dictate policy. So I don't know how to go about that if it's contacting your congressman, making it clear that the reason why we voted you into office, the reason why people voted for you, and that this is coming from areas where they have somebody that ran on an anti-Obamacare platform, and that's many of the Republican politicians throughout the entire country, many of the Republican congressmen throughout the entire country. They, One of their big planks was anti-Obamacare, and that's why people voted them in. They did not vote them in to pass some sort of rebranding of Obamacare. They passed them to go in there and get rid of it. And then we'll see where we are after we get rid of it. And of course, I think both parties want control. So I think the Republicans still would want to pass something, um, would want to pass something giving some group of people an entitlement because they'd be taking away a large entitlement if they were repealing the Affordable Care Act. But what people want is repeal, a clean repeal. And I wish that they had just tried that to see, because how could you possibly, how could the moderate Republicans, all these people that, that ran on an anti-Obamacare platform, how could they possibly go back and face their constituents if there was a bill out there to repeal Obamacare, just repeal Obamacare, not replace it with anything, if that bill was out there and they didn't support it? It would be very difficult for them to go back and to face their constituents. And then Trump and many of those Republicans assuming that they passed that clean repeal, you know, they would have done what they were elected to do. But that's, this is one of my big problems with the Republican party. And I talked to, I, I think I called them spineless. I, I don't know if I called them spineless, something I wrote, or if I called them spineless on this podcast, but that's really what they are. They run on this small government platform. They try to act like they're small government they get to Washington, and then they don't want to take away anybody's free stuff. And right now, with, with how expansive the federal government is, with how much is being spent, how much is being distributed through Washington, D.C., you have to be willing to take people's free stuff. You have to be. And I know it's not popular. I know the people whose free stuff is being taken away from them are going to be vocal. And you may be unpopular among those groups of people. But... If you're not willing to do that, if you're not willing to touch redistribution, not willing to touch entitlement programs, then you are big government. You know, you are, you are not, you are not being the small government politician that people elected you to be. And so I just hate, I hate the, hate the hypocrisy. I really do. And that's what they've been for decades now. They have not been a check on what the Democratic Party wants to do. And I think ultimately they like the direction that things are going in. They like having more control at the federal level. That's why it's refreshing to see the House Freedom Caucus be willing to stand up against it and not fall in line behind their party and show this is what our people elected us to do. This is what we said throughout our campaign. This is what we have been when we've been in Washington, D.C. We're not going to compromise on that just because Donald Trump tells us to fall in line. We're not going to compromise our morals for for partisan reasons. And I think that's something that a lot of us should respect, even if you're on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And I think a lot of a lot of people on the left probably are praising the House Freedom Caucus just because it stopped the Affordable Care Act from going away. So they're grateful for them for, for doing that. Um, but I think that the reason why people should be grateful or should at least respect it is because they stood behind what they said from the beginning. And they had, they had said from the beginning that, Obamacare is a travesty, and we don't want just a rebranding of Obamacare. We want something radically different. 
and they weren't willing to, to fall in line behind this very similar legislation. I know that basically the Democrats have been trying to, to push that this is just a complete overhaul and that people are going to be dying in the streets as the result, as a result of this new legislation. Um, but I think that's far from the truth. Another very strong possibility is if Trump does try to go back out and, and try to pass new legislation that he works closer, works more closely with the Democrats because it looks like the house freedom caucus isn't going to budge. So what I think may happen is they move something closer to what the affordable care act is, is currently. So even more similar or maybe even more toward a single payer system to try to get moderate Democrat support. And he said that he would be quote, totally open end quote to working with Democrats on healthcare quote, when they all become civilized end quote. Um, and then Nancy Pelosi said something that, uh, there could be some cooperation there if, if they were to lower prescription drug prices. So po- both Pelosi and Trump, both, they said that there could be areas where the Republican and Democratic interests come together. So that's another possibility. I wanted to make sure that that was out there. Uh, another good quote that I wanted to make sure I threw in there before I go off to another topic was Representative Joe Barton from Texas. He, he was asked why his fellow Republicans were so united over the last seven years to get rid of Obamacare just to crumble, basically, when they actually had an opportunity to do it. He said, quote, sometimes you're playing fantasy football and sometimes you're in the real game, end quote. And I think that's a good description of what's happening here. They were willing to say it. They were willing to say, yes, we'll repeal Obamacare. We will get rid of it. We want to get rid of it and hold votes to, to repeal it when they knew it wasn't going to happen because they knew that once it actually did happen or once it was actually a realistic possibility that it was going to happen, that they would have this vocal minority coming out and slamming them for, for taking away an entitlement program. And that's exactly what happened here. So they weren't willing to do it when it started to become politically unpopular among certain groups and they crumbled. And that's, why I said spineless, they weren't willing to stand up to that pressure, weren't willing to do what large swaths of the American electorate sent them to Washington to do. So I think that's everything I want to say about this healthcare bill for now. It looks like we probably won't be talking about it again for a while, which is a good thing. I've been very healthcare heavy recently, and it becomes a, a taxing topic to talk about for sure. The other part of this episode, what I wanted to discuss was why I left the left. Why I originally registered as a Democrat when I was 18 years old and then slowly moved away from the democratic ideals, from the progressive ideals toward libertarianism. And when I started, so both my parents are are generally liberal. I wouldn't call them overly partisan or anything like that, but uh, both generally liberal. And I think much of my family is as well. So that certainly helped things, you know, helped push me in that direction a little bit. But I, I like to think that I was always more of an independent thinker. And there were certain topics that I felt very strongly about. And one of those was mass imprisonment in the United States and, and all the, you know, all the harm that the drug war has done. And especially why marijuana should be legalized. And then, you know, eventually extended that to other drugs too. But that was always a very important issue for me something that the Republicans are not are not strong on, the, the mainstream Republican Party. And the Democrats are stronger on 
than the Republican Party at the at the very least. Also, thinking about um about gay marriage, that was an important topic to me. Not treating different groups of people differently under the law. Uh, I thought that was something important to me. Once again, something that I think the Democrats are stronger on than the Republicans. Though I have a nuanced, different opinion, you know, basically that the government shouldn't be involved in marriage, period, at this point. But I didn't have that kind of nuanced view at that point. Another thing I felt strongly about was that our adventurism overseas, our foreign policy adventurism, was harmful. That being involved in these wars was killing young people, costing us a whole lot of money, and that they did more harm than good. And once again, I think it's something where the Democrats were at least better than the Republicans on that issue. And I think you're raised, most people are raised, unless you happen to be in a household where people are part of a third party or, you know, where you have maybe exposure to all these other different kinds of ideas. Or if you happen to have a relative that is a libertarian or is, you know, a member of the Communist Party, even like to, to talk about another extreme. But you think about things in black and white, especially when you're younger, when you're a teenager. It, it, it's really as you get older that you start to see, well, there are other options. I don't just have to pick one side or the other. But that's how I looked at things. I looked at there's the Republican Party and the Democratic Party. Which one do I want to choose? And based on those things that I felt most strongly about, I, I felt I'm definitely in that camp. I'm definitely in the Democratic camp. And then, of course, when you become a, a faithful member of a given party or of a given ideology, you start to fall in line behind their other views. So those views that I felt strongly about, I could defend very strongly. You know, I I had done a lot of research on them and I felt, okay, this is my position and, and this is a position I can defend. But a lot of the other, you know, a lot of the other portions of progressive ideology, I just adopted because people that felt the same way about those issues that I felt strongly on also believed in these other things. So even when I didn't really know much about them, I would just kind of parrot other arguments, other arguments that I'd heard people make. And I figured, well, if that's what they believe on this issue, because they agree with me on these other issues, that means this must be the right position to take. And that's not a good way to go about life. It's not a good way to go about analyzing issues. And it's not, it's not a good way to be an independent thinker. So I don't think I was being an independent thinker in most instances. But then I, I started to research more and one of the big things that happened, so I was born in 1992, so I would have turned 18 in 2010. That would have been when I when I registered to vote, so I wasn't eligible to vote in the first Obama election. But the 2012 election was the first one I could really follow and I could cast my vote in, and that was one where Ron Paul really emerged, and I listened to him quite a bit, and I had a close friend of mine at the time who was very into Ron Paul, worked on his campaign. So I had a little bit of, you know, a little additional information coming from him as well. But watching him and watching the debates is something I was always interested in doing. I, th I thought, well, he agrees with me on these issues that I feel most strongly about. But he also doesn't hold all these other, all these other portions of progressive ideology. So you start to think there is a third way. There is another way where I don't have to just choose choose these sides between Democrat and Republican. And that was that was very refreshing to know. Uh, Ron Paul agreed with me on war, on on, on adventurism. I thought his anti-war stance was great. He defended it very well. Uh, 
but the way he defended it, it was with principles. With with him, it wasn't. He doesn't just have an isolated position on each issue. He has an overarching philosophy, and then he applies that philosophy to individual positions, to individual issues. And I started to see that, like, okay, this is why he believes what I believe. He got to that conclusion differently from the way that I got there. But we have the same conclusion. So you trace back his logic, and you, you trace it back to basically that when government gets too large, it has this kind of, it has this unceasing ability to get involved in things. And one of those things it gets involved in are foreign conflicts. And it eventually leads to war, leads to the military getting larger. And part and parcel of having a, having a big government is getting involved in those foreign conflicts. So you start to see that's the logic that he drew to why intervention is harmful. It's basically we're looking to pick a fight. We're looking to get involved in things because our government has grown to such a large size. And then, of course, the ramifications, I think we both would agree with, you know, that that being involved in these other countries has, has helped those other countries with recruiting terrorists. It's made us enemies of many countries, of many people on the world stage. So I think our conclusions were very similar. Just how we got there was different. But you, you see that that's his position. And you think, hey, let, let's see what his position on other issues are. So I talked about another one that I felt strongly about was the war on drugs. And he felt the same way. He thinks it's a travesty that so many people are imprisoned in the United States, that so many people are imprisoned for victimless crimes, that it's not only a waste of money, but it's, it's unconscionable as well. And then also talking about these are the unintended consequences of the war on drugs more crime specifically, but also a more expansive police state to try to enforce all these all these extra victimless laws that typically if you're only if you're only out trying to stop crimes that actually had a victim, of course the police state would be smaller. Police forces would be smaller. They wouldn't have to be out trying to catch people for these crimes that didn't actually hurt anybody. Uh, so we had the same conclusion there. Once again we kind of were drawing them from different principles, but I started to see a logical consistency there. Gay marriage is another one that I talked about, and basically his position is that the state shouldn't be involved, so he has no problem with with gays getting married. And I thought that was an, another principled position where we came to the same conclusion, and maybe our positions were slightly different. I, I would have been in favor at that time of the Supreme Court basically legalizing gay marriage across the land. I, I don't agree with that position now. I don't think that that's something that the Supreme Court should be involved in. But I think we both now, we have the same position ultimately, which is that gays should be able to get married and the government shouldn't be able to stop that from happening, essentially. Uh, so those three issues, and there are others I'm sure that I felt quite strongly about, but those are the three that stuck out in my mind when I just started riffing about this. Then I started to research his other positions and, and what else flowed from that political philosophy. And certain things took longer than others to start to get because you do have basically these these policy prescriptions in your mind. I was a proponent of, of universal health care, for instance, and that one took me a little bit longer to come around on. Uh, but I think a good thing about what happened, a good thing about originally being a Democrat, or originally making those arguments originally, you know, knowing what people say and what the arguments are for those issues, it's made made it far easier 
to refute them today. I know those arguments just as well as anybody making them now because I researched them at length. I made them myself and I know basically what people are going to say on a given issue before they say it if they're arguing from that progressive perspective. So I think it's helped. I think most libertarians, I think most conservatives too. I just read uh, Thomas Sowell's A Personal Odyssey and he has a little little blurb in there talking about him sitting around the table with a bunch of, you would call them conservatives probably. They kind of were a wide range from neoconservatives to more libertarian-ish conservatives. Uh, but they all had a story about coming from the left. And Thomas Sowell originally was a Marxist. And then he eventually came over after he started working for the government and he came around to believing that markets were generally the better prescription for progress and that, that Marxism was not an actual realistic or beneficial philosophy for people to actually follow. Uh, but most conservatives started that way. I know that Hayek, he was a socialist. He eventually moved his way over toward uh, toward classical liberalism after reading uh, von Mises's socialism, I believe. But a lot of the great conservative, you want to lump conservatives in with libertarians. I, th- I think there's a pretty large distinction there in a lot of cases. But a lot of conservatives do generally believe in freer markets and all that. There is there is some overlap there between what what they and libertarians think. But I think. In both senses, a lot of people have come from the left. I know some libertarians, some anarcho-capitalists, especially Tom Woods is one that comes out in my mind at the forefront, but he came from being just a general conservative, and he moved his way toward libertarianism when he was in college. But I think that's more the exception than the rule, and I think he would say the same thing. He's talked about that topic before, but that most people that have come to libert have come to libertarianism have come from the left and have had a more similar transition to me a more similar development to me than to tom woods it doesn't mean one's better than the other or anything but i think the main reason why i wanted to do this episode wanted to talk about this a little bit is because i think a lot of people who are on the left and you think about college students young people especially people that really haven't thought about all the different philosophies out there that there are that really haven't fully formed their own thoughts on issues, you can still reach those people and you can appeal to them. You probably have to appeal to different groups of people in different ways. So you may appeal to leftists differently than you will appeal to a neocon of the same age. You're not going to make the same points to those two different groups of people. But I think by making a principled argument and by making it clear, these are the principles on which I stand I think you can reach a lot of people. And I think one of the things that that this election has taught us or that people think has taught us is that the left the left doesn't learn. So they made a lot of mistakes. I I talked earlier about nominating Hillary Clinton and they still wanted to continually blame Russia and Putin that's still going on, basically blaming outside factors beyond that Hillary Clinton was a poor candidate and beyond all of her flaws, and beyond the flaws of the DNC, and how they were trying to rig the election in her favor, rig the the uh, primaries in her favor, and basically screw Bernie Sanders out of a real shot at that nomination. All those mistakes are just swept under the rug, and they're trying to blame external factors. 
but the conclusion that people have drawn is, well, the left is beyond us. The the left, we're never going to be able to reach them. So let's just point at them and laugh and go about our day. But I, I don't think that's the right approach to make. I think maybe, yes, the establishment, maybe the leadership of the left is is beyond reaching at this point. But there are a lot of young people who were disillusioned by what happened to Bernie Sanders there. And I think those people can be reached by a principled message. And that principled message may very well be libertarianism. I I think it's the most consistent. I think it is the most principled philosophy out there. Of course, I'm biased. But I think that you can reach these people who haven't fully formed their own thoughts and they're just willing to follow something that they think is principled that they think is is being conducted by honest people. And that's what they thought about Bernie. They thought he was trustworthy and that that was somebody that they could get behind and that the people advocating democratic socialism had their best interests in mind. And whether that's true or not, that's what they thought. That's what these young people, these college students, these early to mid-20s people thought. And I certainly understand why they fell in line behind him. When you look at what was happening on the Republican side of the ticket and what was happening on the Democratic side of the ticket, or at least on the Clinton portion of the Democratic part of the ticket, I can see why they turned to Bernie Sanders. And then Libertarians nominated Gary Johnson, who did not make any sort of principled reach toward these people. He didn't have a principled message. He couldn't really formulate or verbalize what his position was on a whole host of different issues because he wasn't taking it back to his principles. Because I don't think he really has any. He thinks, okay, you know, I can be this kind of hip, uh, you know, in favor of, of marijuana legalization guy, and I'm, I'm generally kind of conservative, but I also believe in this. And that's basically what he took with him to the voters. And the voters aren't going to respond to that. They're, they're going to respond to a principled message like what Ron Paul brought to the table. And yes, maybe you're not going to get enough of the vote to really fully impact the presidential election. But I think you would have gotten a lot more than what Gary Johnson got. And I think you would have reached out to those people in that crucial age demographic, the 18 to 24 year olds. I think you could have brought a lot of those people onto the libertarian side with what happened in this prior election. But instead, a lot of them went to Bernie. I think some of them ended up just voting for Hillary because they thought it was the lesser of two evils. I think more than we thought people went to Trump. And that's what I was saying then that, Sanders and Trump actually had a lot of overlap and the people that voted for Sanders out of personal interest because they thought that they were going to benefit personally from a Bernie Sanders presidency. I think those people were far more likely to defect to Trump than to defect to Clinton. But I think if the libertarians had run a more principled candidate and been able to get that message out there, I think you could have gotten a lot of those people to come over to the libertarian side because they would have seen at least this is a trustworthy group of people with principles. Even if maybe I don't agree with all their positions, I can respect that they have principles. And I think a lot of people do respond to that. But I think that's why I wanted to say here, I think those people can be reached. And it's very hard looking at what's happening on college campuses today and really the hysteria, just the the hysterics at Things that 10 years ago wouldn't have even been a blip on the radar, but now they're being turned into an episode of of racism or homophobia or Islamophobia or whatever you want to call it. But these episodes are happening more and more on college campuses. So I think it's causing older people and, I mean, even people my age who were just recently out of college to just write off college students like, well, they're obviously beyond reason. We can't, we can't reach them. But I don't think that's the case. 
I think it's a small minority that's really causing things to go haywire on college campuses. And I think these people can be reached. And I think that there is a void there that by having a somewhat unified principle message by libertarians will be able to reach those people. And I think I was one of those people that was reached by what I think was a unified principled presidential campaign. Now it doesn't have to be a presidential campaign that gets these, these ideas out there. It can be a group of very good speakers and there are a ton of great speakers within the Liberty movement. So there's no shortage there. Uh, but I think leftists and especially young leftists are not beyond the reach of the ideas of Liberty, despite however much we want to think that they're so far gone that they're never going to be able to be to be brought back to sanity. I'm saying sanity. I'm a, I'm a little biased, like I said before. But I think that's why I wanted to do this episode, kind of explain my history a little bit after talking about the the updates to the healthcare legislation and its death. But I wanted to say this is how I got to where I am today. And I think that can be the path for a lot of people. Um, so if some older people are listening to this, if you have kids or younger relatives who are in that that age group or in their late teens, they're still there. You know, they, they haven't formulated their thoughts enough to really be sure. And don't bring it up to them. Don't don't be confrontational, but talk to them and try to flesh out what their positions are and why they believe the things that they believe and be willing to say what you believe and what your principles are. And once again, don't make it confrontational, but I think you can really spark some thoughts there because very likely there are things that they have not thought about or possible positions that they haven't even explored that they may not even know exist because they're not being exposed to them in school or not being exposed to them by their peers. Uh, so I think we can make a change, at least on an individual basis too. And so I'm trying to do with this podcast a little bit, get different ideas out there. And I've had several people come up to me and say in a, in a particular episode or something that, oh, that was a that was a different way to look at that issue. And I hadn't really thought about it that way before, but I, I really liked what you had to say there. And I think that that's what we can all do by going out and talking to our friends and family. And you don't have to make it into these political discussions where people don't talk to each other ever again after the discussion. It doesn't have to be heated. You don't have to bring up the abortion issue or something like that, something that's very emotionally charged. It can be something relatively benign that you try to flesh out in this way. So you can do it in a way where it's not going to threaten your relationships. And I think if there's a relationship that would be threatened by talking about some more benign political issue, then it's probably not a friendship or a relationship worth keeping. But thank you for listening. I, I try not to go on to personal tangents too much, but I think this is an important one because I think it's a process that a lot of people are going through now or have already gone through. And I think that people out there probably can relate to it. So thank you for listening. I'm hoping to have another one out in the next couple of days here. There's definitely other things on, on my queue, constant things on my queue. Um, I have been working pretty hard trying to get a pretty decent draft of my book together on the student loan bubble, on the higher education bubble and, and what the student loan crisis is doing to a whole generation of Americans. And that's been fun to work on, but it's been taking up more of my time. So I haven't put out as many episodes as I normally would, but I think the end product here that I'm working on is going to be well worth it. I think people are going to enjoy it. It's going to have a lot of information and analysis. And I think, I think there's not something like this out there where all this information has been brought together and where actual conclusions have been reached about, about the federal student loan program and what it's doing to this whole generation 
of Americans. So I'm pretty excited about what that turns into, but that has taken up more of my time. So I haven't been able to do as many episodes, but I do hope to have one out either, you know, Monday or Tuesday because I, I have 10 different topics I could potentially talk about that I've gotten that cue. So thank you for listening. Have a fantastic week and I'll talk to you soon.